And let me begin this morning with a, a hypothetical story. Um, once I start it, if you've heard this before, just track with me and make sure to give me a chuckle at the end. I, I need that. There's a plane that is traversing across the sky that unfortunately, due to mechanical failure, is heading on its way down. Now this plane has four passengers, a pilot, a computer expert, a pastor, and a boy scout. Unfortunately, the problem is, is that with four passengers, there's only three parachutes. The pilot says that, hey, I'm young, I have a wife and three children, and I need one of those parachutes, so he takes it and he jumps. The computer expert says, hey, I'm one of the smartest guys on the planet here. The world needs me. So he takes the parachute and he jumps. And like a good pastor, he says to the Boy Scout, listen, young man, you've got a long life ahead of you. I'll go down with this plane. You take the last chute. And the Boy Scout says to him, relax, pastor. The smartest man in the world just took my knapsack to jump with. <laughs> now, that was a good chuckle. I appreciate it. It's a good chuckle, of course, but at the end of the day, how many of us have been a computer expert at times? What is it that drove such a smart man to be clueless? Pride has a way of humbling the best of us, myself included. Paul, within this letter to the church at Philippi, has repeatedly emphasized this concept of humility regarding others as more important than yourself. What's the opposite of this godly char characteristic of humility but pride? How would we define pride? Boasting in ourselves, perhaps the opposite of regarding others as more important, but regarding ourselves as more important. We all love the great principles of godly living found within the Proverbs. Listen to several of these principles concerning pride. Proverbs 11, verse 2 reads, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, 16, 18. And in Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low. These are just a few of many examples that we can see in the scriptures concerning the dangers of pride. None of us are living a life that desires dishonor or destruction then why is it that we all struggle at pride, with pride at times? From the beginning, man has wrestled with the idea that we know best. The serpent first deceived Eve, according to the promises of God, question, causing her to question the promises of God, and then Adam willingly complied. John tells us that along with the lust of the flesh, in the lust of the eyes comes the boastful pride of life 
which comes from the world. The question should not be, why do we struggle with pride? But the question should be, how do we overcome it? It's a reality that we will never escape. However, there's still good news. As believers, we can be aware of its dangers and in turn wage war against it. God would have us to do so. Augustine is quoted as saying that it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. In the last couple weeks, we've seen two wonderful examples of humble servants in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Today, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we will see Paul begin to transition this letter and speak to this beloved church of his about warning them about potential influences that could lead them astray, warning them against pride, a prideful heart. As for us, in our personal application, our question for consideration will be, how do we protect ourselves against pride? I want us to unpack three warnings from the text that will certainly be as a safeguard for us against pride. Would you stand with me, please, as we read the text for to us today? Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. You may be seated. The first warning that we see from the text I've titled, Beware of Your Motivations. Beware of Your Motivations. Paul here in verse 1, just like any good preacher, uses the word finally, and then proceeds to communicate 44 more verses. <laughs> now, I reserve the right to do so myself, and I have biblical grounds to do so. I'm just kidding, just being facetious. Maybe I'll use a different word. In all seriousness, though, Paul uses this word quite often in several of his epistles. He uses it as a mark of point of transition and emphasis. What is that transition here? It's a repeated theme that we see throughout, but with a new emphasis. Going back to our introductory message, 
And throughout our exposition, we've seen these two characteristics of joy and rejoicing as major encouragements found within the letter. However, here for the first time, he adds this phrase, in the Lord. The word rejoice is a command. He's communicating that there's this intention that he desires that they have a continual lifestyle of practicing joy, practicing rejoicing. The word or a a form of this word appears ten separate times throughout the letter. Joy or rejoicing. The addition of the in the Lord nine times throughout. We see it used with phrases, phrases such as trusting in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Receiving Epaphroditus in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. Standing firm in the Lord. Living in harmony in the Lord. He then goes on to communicate that to write the same things again is not trouble to me. It's not a bother to Paul. Because he understands the importance of repetition. He understands that there will be influences that will lead their hearts astray. He understands, as we referenced earlier, there's no escaping the temptation of pride. So, what are these things? What are these same things? Let's take a look at some of the previous dialogue for a clue. Turn back to chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Opponents are always lurking. And Paul wants the church to be prepared for them. Unfortunately, we will see here shortly that at times these opponents are self-righteous influences even within the church. Last week we saw another connection that's important to make concerning this command to rejoice in the Lord. Look again at chapter 2. Verses 25 through 30. But I thought it necessary to ascend to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. 
Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. And hold men like him in high regard. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. As we discussed true last week, true friendship certainly produces joy from a human perspective. But you recall that we spoke of this priority of a God-centered joy. Nevertheless, why is Paul reminding them again to rejoice in the Lord? The answer rests in their acknowledgement of the sovereign hand of God in their lives. That God is in control of everything. And for the believer, he's working everything together for good to those who love him, as the text says, and are called according to his purpose. As for Adam and Eve, they were tempted to believe the lie that they were in control, that they knew better It's interesting to note that the word rejoice is actually derived from the word grace. Once again, I believe wholeheartedly that it allows us and sheds more light on how we might receive ourselves, as the church at Philippi did, this command to rejoice in the Lord. If we were to define grace for clarity, I would define it as as follows. Grace is the free and compassionate influence of a holy God upon the lives of undeserving sinners. When pride begins to raise its ugly head, we must remind ourselves that we are to live a life rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in His goodness and in his provision upon unworthy sinners. That's who we are. What do we have? What have we accomplished that is not from God himself? James chapter 1, verse 17. Beware of your motivation. Rejoice in the Lord in what his sovereign hand has brought into our lives. Paul goes on to give a reason for his reminder. He says, it is a safeguard for you. Now, I have to say that before I came to Northeast Indiana from Cincinnati, Ohio, I needed to look at a safeguard when it came to my family vehicles. I was able to understand that this part of the country has about double the amount of snow and ice that I was used to in Cincinnati, Ohio. There's a big difference between a Honda CRV and a Nissan Sentra. Isn't that true, Jeff? <laughs> My desire was to prepare for potential danger by acquiring a vehicle that was more firm more solid and less susceptible to slipping, all-wheel drive. This is the basic premise that Paul was communicating, apart from a Honda and a Nissan. 
The word safeguard carries the sense of protecting oneself from possible danger. While at the same time communicating a firm grip of knowledge that keeps one from slipping. That's what Paul's communicating when he talks about this will be a safeguard for you. What is that knowledge? What is that knowledge? It keeps us from slipping into pride. Let's take a look at a couple psalms for direction. Psalms chapter 5, verse 11 reads, But rejoice, all who take refuge in you. Sing for joy forever. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Or Psalm 37, verse 4. Many of you, I'm sure, can quote it. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Unfortunately, at times, we all struggle with delighting in ourselves, in our own selfishness. Beware of your motivation. What is the desire of your heart and your service to our King? Do we serve for the benefit of the result? Do we work, eat, and play as we boast in ourselves? Or is our motivation to rejoice in the Lord and to delight in Him? The daily struggle is real for each and every one of us. However, we can take comfort as believers in Christ that we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Our boast in Him will certainly serve as a safeguard against pride. And Paul desired to remind them of that. And His Word reminds us of that very fact today. The second warning is beware of a self righteous influence look again at verses 2 and 3 chapter 3 Paul says beware of the dogs beware of the evil workers beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh Right away from verse 2, we see the strong emphasis upon this word, beware. Three commands, speaking once again about preparation for future danger. It's as if he's saying, look out, look out, look out, sound the alarm, beware. I love this emphasis upon preparation. When it comes to successful Christian living. If we are to be fellow soldiers as we discussed last week. Then we will need to fight this battle together. We will also need to be preparing. For the battle. As any good soldier. Would. Let me draw your attention to the often quoted passages and you don't need to turn there from Ephesians chapter 6 in the armor of God listen 
to God's word when it comes to preparation. Ephesians 6.11 reads, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Or even two verses later, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Jude is going to remind us as well of this type of warning and preparation when it comes to the ungodly influences that attempt to penetrate the church. Turn to the back of your Bibles, right before Revelation and Jude. Verses 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So throughout Scripture and the church here, there is often strong warnings to be on the lookout for potential ungodly influence. The question for us still relates to who is Paul referring to here within our text. He uses three descriptions which begin to offer a suggestion for us on how we might interpret it. The first clue is found in a cultural Jewish understanding of the first description, dogs. He says that these people are dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. Now, as it pertains to dogs, this one's a little difficult for me to share, being a dog lover myself. Those of you that can relate, not my wife, even though I have three dogs. Dogs within Jewish culture were regarded as despised, unclean, miserable creatures. This type of understanding allowed for them to use such description to describe Gentiles in this manner. Evil workers is the second description he's warning against. This is an evil in the sense that this message is one that's contrary to the biblical one. A message that would boast in one's works rather than rejoicing in the Lord alone. And then finally, the third description truly begins to demonstrate his concern here. What is it that would drive him to command the church to beware of this ungodly influence? He uses the term false 
circumcision. And this term literally translated means to mutilate. So, what is he referring to concerning this warning? Paul, before writing this letter, had experienced a similar type of controversy in the Galatian church. Keep your place here and turn back just a couple letters before to Galatians. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We see Paul speaking to and about these people that would be as though resting or trusting or speaking a message as a false circumcision, trusting in something apart from grace and faith alone. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 reads, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But faith working through love. This controversy and the one that Paul is referring to in Philippi relates to this self-righteous influence, the self-righteous attitude of some within the church, an attitude that would add works to the gospel. Whether these people are referring to Gentiles as dogs because they are unclean and without Circumcision, operating as evil workers as they attempted to add works to the gospel. Or masquerading as if circumcision was some type of badge of honor. The danger is clear and ever present. Beware of the self-righteous influence. Why is that? Paul's going to say in the beginning of the letter to Galatia. That these men who would preach and teach such a message are to be accursed. Damned. It's a false gospel that would add any works to the message of grace and faith alone. Simply stated, it's an affront to the gospel that we cherish and hold and understand and know as biblical and true. Because it glorifies man. Rather than God. Now. If you're wondering what might be an application. Of this type of heresy. False gospel. False teaching today. Allow me to offer just one brief example. For you. As a pastor. As a shepherd. 
one of the primary responsibilities that any pastor has been given is to shepherd and protect his flock. I would say to you, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, co-workers in this fight together, beware of the social justice movement. Beware of terms such as critical race theory. Beware of the term equity as opposed to equality. Beware of an overemphasis upon ethnicity slash race or gender or terms such as reparations as if they are essential to the gospel. Our focus is upon Christ alone and the equality that all image bearers of God have. There is so much that I could say here. But for simplicity and clarity, I would say beware of that message, which is a self-righteous, ungodly influence, false message. If you desire more details pertaining to that, I would direct you to a video on YouTube labeled by what standard by what standard I also spoke briefly to this discussion in our Q&A before coming here and maybe one day we'll do a series on the dangers of this movement and let me also say stay on guard perhaps you're tempted to say, this is northeast rural Indiana. That doesn't affect us. I have news for you. It's coming. No one would have guessed several years ago that the largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, Convention or an organization such as the Gospel Coalition would have many that are touting and promoting this false teaching. Or well-known pastors and leaders such as David Platt, Matt Chandler, Russell Moore, Judah Smith, and yes, I'm naming names because my desire is to protect you and to shepherd you. This is a false message when it comes to this social justice agenda. As for us here at MCC, let us be a people who would be found adding nothing to the gospel. Rejoicing in the Lord alone. Let us be a people who would echo the sentiments of Charles Spurgeon when he said, be not proud of race, face, place, or even grace. This will indeed serve as a safeguard for us 
and protect us against pride. What do we have to boast in? This will enable us to stay focused upon the only message of hope for spiritually dead individuals, and that is the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. In verse 3, Paul helps to further identify the self-righteous influence by way of illustrating its counter perspective. What does it mean to be the true circumcision, as he states? Paul's already identified that this false circumcision is a sort of mutilation, an outward expression. True circumcision is of the heart. Romans chapter 2, verse 29 reads, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from people, but from God. So what does this look like? He goes on to offer three positive descriptions which continue to protect the church from this opposing self-righteous influence. He says that the true circumcision worship in the Spirit of God. They glory in Christ Jesus and they put no confidence in the flesh. How does this contribute to our question? How do we protect ourselves from pride? To begin with, we understand this phrase to worship in the Spirit of God as a divine initiating work of the Spirit in us, not of ourselves. It is the Spirit that enables fallen man to serve him, to boast in Christ alone, to put no confidence in the flesh. As the old saying goes, if you want to know the counterfeit, become more aware of the real thing. The dangers of a self-righteous, ungodly influence are real, and we must be on guard against it. Beware! However, let us never waver in the pursuit, positive pursuit, of boasting in Christ alone. Whether that is in evangelism, in discipleship, in teaching, in work, in family, it will indeed protect us from pride. It will also embolden us with confidence. Why is that? Because that confidence exudes through us, not from us, but through Christ, which is in us, in the Holy Spirit. Remember that when you're tempted, as I am as well, 
for example, when it comes to a witness encounter. We have what we need in the words of eternal life. We don't need all the answers. It's Christ who speaks through his word through us. That's confidence building. That enables us to beware, to be mindful of pride. Unfortunately, and I've seen it clearly on display, some of the best and greatest apologists, defenders of the Christian faith, at times can come across as some of the most prideful men that you would ever see. But pride cannot come as we speak God's word. Truth in love. Our third and final warning is beware of your reputation. Beware of your reputation. Now, I'm probably going to show my age here. And for some of you young men and women, I don't even know if this still takes place, but do they still have yearbooks in high schools? Okay. So maybe I'm not as old as what I think. Many of those yearbooks are often filled with a most likely award. Most likely to succeed, most likely to be a professional athlete, most likely to be president, most likely to be happily married. I nailed that one. By the grace of God. And by a better woman than what I could ever be. And not me being a woman, but you understand what I'm saying. I've got to clear that one up. <laughs> She's my better half is what I'm trying to <laughs> communicate. There was a sense of pride in being selected. A sense of respect was given because many times these awards are voted on by classmates. In these last three verses, we see that if anyone was able to boast outside of Christ, it was Paul. Follow along with me in verses 4 through 6. Again, we read, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul himself, confirms in verse 4 here this inescapable temptation to be prideful. And he presumes that others understand this feeling as well. Even if you're like me and you are not voted as most likely to succeed, we all in some respect have fallen victim to the prideful boast of reputation. Whether our life has been marked with success, a 
for suffering, the pride of reputation will inevitably surface. Success, perhaps at times, is easier to see. But for those that have suffered, there are at times when that reputation becomes a sort of false humility that we find ourselves boasting in. In verses 5 and 6, he lists Paul, his impeccable resume, and his potential reason for pride in his reputation. Again, he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness in the law, found blameless. Let's briefly take a look at these. The eighth day in circumcision, essential to the Jewish people. Genesis chapter 17, verse 12. This is compared to the Gentiles that would have not been circumcised on the eighth day. The nation of Israel, we all know. God's chosen people. Ethnic purity clearly on display. The tribe of Benjamin. The only son that was born in the promised land. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born of Hebrew parents. Maintained Hebrew tradition in a pagan society. As to the law of Pharisee, taught by one of the greatest of Pharisees in Gamaliel. Jews looked to Pharisees in high regard, held them in high regard. Zeal, a persecutor of the church. Zeal, once again, for the Jewish people was held in the highest regard as men that desired to fight for what they believed was true. And as to righteousness, found blameless. Not blameless in the sense that he was without sin, but innocent in the practice of ritual cleansing through atonement. Next week, we will see more clearly what Paul thought of these things. Now, as we draw to a close, see, I didn't use the word finally. I got a bunch more numbers, too. Let me ask you the question, as I ask myself, what trophies of reputation and pride are you polishing? Are we mindful of our motivations? Are we on the lookout for the self-righteous influences infecting the church? Adding to the gospel that was once and for all delivered to us? Are we protecting ourselves from the dangers of trusting in our own reputation? In Matthew chapter 19, we have the account of the rich young ruler. And as that rich young ruler came to to Jesus, he said, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus' first words of response, he says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. 
Think about that for a moment. Christ is the only one who is good. And yet we boast in ourselves, in our trophies, in our reputation. How do we protect ourselves from pride? The Puritan John Owen would say, the person who understands the evil in his own heart is the only person who is useful, fruitful, and solid in his beliefs and obedience. Do you understand the flesh that we struggle with? We all. The good news, however, of the gospel is that in spite of that evil, the blood of Christ, if you are a believer here today, has washed us clean. As believers, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. We are capable of boasting in Christ alone. And His work in our lives. That will most certainly protect us from the dangers of pride. It will drive us to have a heart of humility towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and to the world in need of hope. Next Sunday, we will see Paul build upon this mindset and how that drives the deepest desires of the Christian. And I can't wait to bring that next week. Let's pray. We take a deep breath, Lord. We're humbled continually, daily, as we fight this good fight of faith. We fall short, but we know there's no condemnation to those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Lord, forgive us, even as we prayed before the service. of our motivations that are often prideful, of our desire to boast in ourselves. Of at times how we fall victim to the self-righteous influences of the world. We need you, Lord. We are unworthy servants. And in your grace, this free and compassionate influence of you, Lord. You have bestowed upon us unworthy servants. Help us, O oh God, to rejoice daily in you and your sovereign hand in our lives. Help us to be men and women that practice righteousness, that pursue humility, that worship in the Spirit of God, Understanding that it is you that empower us, not ourselves. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray.